Is it useless to serve God? Is it useless to serve God? That's the question before us this morning as we consider Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, through the end of the book in verse 6 of chapter 4. Is serving God useless? Is there a difference between the righteous life and the wicked life? Verse 18 will give us our answer that Indeed, serving God is worthwhile, and there is a difference between the righteous and the wicked. It reads this way and kind of serves as a banner that hangs over the entire pericope. It reads this way, So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. It should be noted in these verses, the wicked isn't... Scripture is it's just someone who has rejected God and lives like it. And the righteous isn't the perfect person. The righteous is simply someone who believes God and lives like it. The righteous is the person that recognizes that independent of God, well, they are in a heap of trouble. The righteous is the person that has given up their independence and made themselves completely dependent upon Christ. It's the person that recognizes that they don't need Jesus any less today than they did yesterday or the day they initially became a Christian. I don't know about you, but I need Jesus now more than ever. Continually that old self, that that zombie, sin-riddled me tries to rise up within. It tempts me to walk in the way of the wicked. And continually I need Jesus to remind me, to tell me, I killed that version of you. It was crucified with me. You are a new creation. And I love you. The righteous is the one who depends on Jesus. And And what I want you to see in this text this morning is that our relationship with God is not a quid pro quo, cold business relationship. It's not a consumer relationship. It is a covenant relationship built upon promises that God keeps even when we don't. And so I've tried to say this in the main idea like this. Knowing God isn't business. It's personal. But I want you to to walk away. If you don't remember anything else from the sermon, I want you to remember this, that knowing God isn't business. It's personal. And the exhortation this morning is to reject the way of the wicked and embrace the way of of the righteous. These are two ways to live. The way that rejects God and lives out its independence and self-definition, does life its way, and the person who 
receives God, believes Him, and tries to please Him. Outline will look this way. We'll consider the way of the wicked together, the way of the righteous, and then the day of the Lord. Let's pray together, consider the context, and then get started. in here need you. Jesus, we need you to meet us afresh. We pray that you would soak our spirits in your presence, that you would quicken our spiritual senses so that we might feel the eminence of your presence with us this morning. God, make us Know what it is to be alive to God. To be spiritually renewed. Don't don't let us leave here as dead people. Don't let us live like worldly people who do not know the goodness of the grace of Jesus Christ. Revive our hearts again this morning, God, with your holy word. Apply your word to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Help us to feel your embrace in the scriptures. Thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to hear and to believe this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So context in Malachi, remember, it's a series of six disputations or conversations. Uh, God, through the prophet Malachi, says, you all are doing this wrong. And the people say, what? What do you mean we're doing that wrong? And then God says, well, this is how you're doing it wrong. And he calls the people to repentance. He says, this is your sin. They say, how have we sinned? And he says, this is how you've sinned. You should Turn from that way of living and obey my word. That's, that's, that's really simple. And that's the same pattern that our text will follow again this morning. What's going on in Malachi is that uh, the temple has been rebuilt and the people uh, at the beginning of this rebuilding of the temple were very hopeful. They were waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled, that the nations were going to stream to Israel and that their stuff was just going to blow up and be awesome. Abundance everywhere, smiles, rainbows, like just end time stuff, really, really good. And as they continued on, what happened was they looked around and they went, God hasn't really kept his end of the bargain here. These promises that that we're expecting to be fulfilled with the rebuilding of the temple, where they're not fulfilled. There's a proverb that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And as God's promises sit there unfulfilled, the people of Israel become very, very sick at heart. They begin to doubt God. They begin to live as if God does not exist. first of all, shows up in their doubt of God's love. Then we see that they offer half-hearted sacrifices through half-holy priests. We see them worship idols by marrying foreign women. We see them withhold from God 
their resources and themselves by refusing to bring the tithe. We see their families break apart through divorce. We see them question the justice of God. And today we see the people speak against God and suggest that it's useless to serve Him. Look with me at verse 13. Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. And yet you ask, what, what have we spoken against you? Uh, this first phrase, your words against me are harsh, it's a Hebrew idiom. And from what I'm able to discern, nobody is able to figure out precisely what it means. I think the idea is that they are overruling God, which is a, a weird kind of way to think about it, or overpowering God with their own words. I think the best way to think about it is God has said one thing and the people are not believing him and have begun saying another. And they've believed their words above God's word. And said that basically God is a liar and we've got it right. And this is what it means for them to speak harshly against the the Lord. He says, your words against me are harsh. bad about you. And then the first thing to notice is the ignorance of the people. They don't understand that their living and their words are offensive to God. They don't see it. They're not even aware of it. They They think that God should be pleased with them. After all, they've been keeping the law. They've offered sacrifices. They're doing what they're supposed to do in their minds. And God says, that's not true at all. Let me put the secret thoughts of your hearts into words. And so God speaks for collective Israel and puts these words in their mouth in verse 14. You have said, it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. The people very arrogantly, very casually speak of God as if he's not God. As if he's just uh, somebody they can approach and say, you've got it wrong. It doesn't matter if we follow you or not. He He doesn't even really bless those who are righteous. He doesn't really punish those who are wicked. And so we are better off I mean, we put on the right mourning clothes. That's what this bit about walking mournfully is. Like We mourned and asked for God to give us his blessing and nothing is happening. We're keeping his law and nothing is happening. Have you ever felt this way? I'm doing what I'm supposed to do in my life. I'm I'm following Jesus. And everything around me is crumbling. Like, God, I I go to church every week, most weeks. I'm, I'm reading my Bible. I'm meeting with you in prayer. Why are my bills unpaid? Why is my marriage a mess? Why are my loved ones getting sick, God? Where is your blessing? 
I've, I've done my part. Why aren't you doing yours? Because that's the, that's the exact feeling that, that the people of Israel are having here. They're going, we've done our part. We've rebuilt the temple. Your glory isn't in it. So you've proven yourself false to us. We haven't gained anything by keeping your requirements. See, the problem with this type of thinking is that it reduces our relationship with God down to a business transaction. I do. And everything goes smoothly. The problem with that is that God is not your butler. He does not exist to do your bidding. He is to be feared and honored. He's worthy of love, not because he blesses you, but because he's God. What happens when we, we set up these kind of false expectations about what God should do in our lives, and then when he doesn't do exactly what we think he should do, shake our fists at him, foolishly. We, it doesn't even, doesn't even pay to follow God. This is, this is foolish thinking. When we get angry at the Lord for not living according to our rule, I'm sorry, for not doing things according to our rule, we're simply sinning. We're setting ourselves up as kings rather than submitting ourselves to Him as the King. When we do this to God, we put Him on the same level as us. Not too long ago in the fall, we had the, uh, that solar eclipse. I think it was a solar one, right? It was a big eclipse. Uh, anybody, everybody got those really awesome glasses with the cardboard and the sweet lenses? I think Mike just wears those around on the regular because they're so awesome. And, and what you, you did was you had to have these glasses to actually view the eclipse. And uh, you... you Because the sun from 92 million miles away can blind you and burn out your corneas. I think it's funny that we think we can casually approach the God who made the sun, who can burn our eyes out from 92 million miles away, as if it's no big deal. how, How many of you speak arrogantly to God in your heart of hearts, you would never say it out loud. Like the people of Israel do here. God, you're doing me wrong. My plan would work better than yours. How arrogant. How foolish. How many of you go, you know, add on to that? I've done my part. I've earned your blessing. So where is it? This is the epitome of foolishness. The way of the wicked in these verses is marked by two things. A trust in empty ritual. I do my part, God must do his. And a flippancy towards God. They they don't fear God. And it really is interesting to note, don't miss this. This is not a message to a bunch of non-Christians. Well, I guess
this to people who believe that they're God's chosen people. These are not outsiders. These are insiders. And so these are words that Amos would be proclaiming to the contemporary church. Like, he's not coming down hard on people that don't believe. He's speaking to people that consider themselves believers. And he's saying, much as Jesus did to the Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs. Your empty ritual is worth nothing. How can you approach God so flippantly? And we do well to ask ourselves this question. Do I flippantly approach God? Do I demand God that, bless, that He bless me in response to my obedience? Is my obedience to gain God's favor or do I obey God because I already have His favor in Christ? Those are two entirely different things. Friends, Heartless worship is not worship. It is business. And God, oh, he's not in business. He doesn't want your business. It's personal. And look what happens among some of those who hear these words in verse 16. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies my own possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. In verse 16, a revival breaks out. There is a group of people in Israel who fear the Lord. You see that word show up a few times. This is to be set against those who do not fear the Lord and speak harshly against Him. Instead, these people fear God and they speak to one another about God. I, I know the text doesn't say that explicitly, but I'm almost certain they're not talking about the weather or sports. No, they are believing God. To fear God is to hold Him in the highest regard. It's to believe that He does what he says. And a fear of God shows up in a repentance of sin in him. To fear God is to be concerned about what it would be like if you offended him. It's to take God seriously. And there's a group here who, who fears him. And so the righteous are marked by both fear and fellowship. Fellowship comes out in a couple places. First, God says, they will be mine. Those who fear him and have a high regard for his name, those who honor God as God, he says, they will be mine. My own possession on the day I am preparing. 
I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. You don't miss this. This is a treasure. God is saying, those who fear me, my people, they're mine. I love them and have compassion on them in the same way a parent does their child. Mine. This is a personal relationship. We also see this note about a book of remembrance. And this is a motif throughout Scripture. It shows up sometimes. And typically the idea of a a book of remembrance or the book of life is kind of like this census in, in this book in which everybody who believes God has their name. here. Uh, But I think rather, uh, one of the commentators I read, I I liked his position. He he suggests that because the people have repented and gathered together, what they're drawing up here is is not a a book, uh, it's not God who's writing in this book of remembrance, it's the people who are drawing up a covenant with one another so that they remember who it is that's being faithful to God. Either way, both things are true. The people who fear God are in fellowship with God and they are in fellowship with one another. They're committed to one another and God will not forget them. Look at the the fellowship they have with one another, what marks them. They fear God and so they repent and they speak to one another. They they speak to one another about God. And so they're, they're doing two things both implicit here. They are gathering together and they are talking about God. These are are two, maybe of the most fundamental things a Christian is supposed to do. We're supposed to gather together as God's people and talk about God. I wonder, what do you talk about after church? or during the week. Overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I wonder if your words are harsh words, arrogant words, or words that are fearful and faithful. What you talk about will reveal what you love. Do you love Jesus? They gather together and they speak about God. Again, this is just so fundamental. It's why I get up here all the time and I tell you, like, come to church. Come to church. Let's talk about God together. Let's encourage one another. Like, this venue, this, this, this hour that we have together, it should be, it's such a full hour. It's awesome. We get to talk about what God has done. And we get to encourage one another. Like, like uh, one of the analogies I love is as sheep, we want to do two things. We want to eat and exercise. And in coming together, we get to eat, we get to feast upon God's word and become healthy. And we also get to exercise that word. We get to live it out. And primarily just through encouraging one another. Did you know, like all of you, I'm going to tell you, all y'all have the gift of encouragement. And you're going, me? 
How? Like when you simply show up it's great that he is the most important thing in your life right then and there and that he is worthy of worship, that something significant is happening here, significant enough for you to interrupt every other thing in your life and to come in here and to talk about him and to sing about him with other people and to pray to him. And when we all show up, when it's a full Sunday morning, you're usually more encouraged than when there are two or three people here because you, you have a visual of what's going on in heaven, that, that something important is going on. I mean, you imagine how lame it would be if you went to like a national championship football game and there are like three people in the stands. This is not as exciting. There's not as much buzz around it. But when you show up here, you're encouraging right away. You're an encourager. Sunday morning is an opportunity for you to gather together and to encourage other believers. It's an opportunity to gather together and to talk about God and it's also an opportunity to feast upon the Word of God. How are you eating and exercising on your Sunday mornings? People are in fellowship with God and they are in fellowship with one another. And maybe my favorite part about this section in verse 16, I love this, don't, don't miss this. The Lord And he listens to us. Listen, Christian, God notices you and he listens to you. He's listening. Maybe you are in a tough spot right now and you're wondering, God, why is this happening to me? Maybe you're tired Maybe you feel like he's left you. But let me tell you, he's not left you. He's listening to you. Our friend Jesus is not a distant friend. He's a friend who when you are in the pit of despair, when you are at the bottom of the well in the darkness, he doesn't shout down from you, down at you from above. Are you okay down there? No, he's down there with you with his arm around you. God listens to you. He cares about you. And don't forget that. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, I want to encourage you to put your faith in Jesus. He will notice and he will listen to you. God knows, he hears, and he loves you. We see the wicked reject God, they do not fear him, and they put their trust in their empty rituals, whereas the righteous fear God, they gather together to speak about God, they work to keep the covenant of God, and God says that they are his. It is interesting, if you look about 
look at what the wicked are concerned with. They're concerned with what they gain, what they have. But it seems that the righteous are simply concerned with who has them. Which are you concerned with? Who has hold of your life? Or the things of this earth that have grown strangely bright in your eyes? God says there will be a difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who believes in him and the one who does not. Look at verse 18. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Chapter 4, verse 1 comes as a warning. This is a warning, all right? For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. When all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble, the coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. See down in verse 5 that Malachi is referring to the great and terrible day of the Lord's coming. This is a warning. When I was at Uh, West Virginia University, doing my undergraduate, you were required to stay in the dorms as a freshman. Which was pretty lame. But, it was alright. It was okay. There are a few drawbacks, though, uh, that were real. One of which was the myriad of fire alarms throughout the year. It didn't seem a week went by where we didn't have a middle-of-the-night fire alarm. Now, some of these were drills, a very small percentage. But more often than not, what happened would be uh, kids would go out and they would get lost in their cups and then they would come back and they would say, hey, do you know what would be really funny? If we pulled the fire alarm. And then their friends would be like, yeah, dude. And they'd pull the fire alarm and then uh, hundreds of students would have to get up out of their beds in the middle of the night, sometimes when it's snowing, and walk outside and, and stand across the street, stare up at the building in the cold. And so naturally what we did uh, was people started staying in their rooms, right? To the extent that uh, the resident assistants during a fire alarm would have to go to each and every room and make sure that the, the room was vacated. And if they found you in your room, you got punished. I mean, kids would hide in bathtubs and under their beds because they didn't want to go outside. You see the problem? Nobody paid any attention to the warning anymore. You'd heard it so much that it didn't conjure up any fear or worry. It didn't didn't lead us to any action. And we did our best to ignore it and keep sleeping. I think likewise, we read these warnings in Scripture of God's judgment and of hell We simply ignore them because that's more pleasant. Don't pay attention to them because, well, we've heard it how many times. I want to tell you, wake up. God's judgment is real. And it will come. It will come. And here's really bad news. The wicked, the people that this judgment is for, it's you.
word. You deserve judgment. That is the bad news. The good news is that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, your judgment day has already happened. What God did on the cross of Christ is, is he took that end times judgment day, the day of the Lord, and for every Christian, he put your judgment day on Good Friday. He punished your sin by punishing Christ. He died in your place. You were the wicked one who deserved to be crucified. He was the righteous one who was crucified so that you might live. And he, here's the scandal of it. If that's not enough, anybody can get in on the deal. Like, anyone can believe in Jesus. The only qualification is that you have to give up on yourself. You have to say, hey, I, I'm a mess. I, am a me- I can't make myself right with God. I... I've done good things, but I recognize I'm not really a good person. I've rebelled against God. My my only hope is Jesus. In your weakness, you will find the strength of Christ when you put your faith in Him. All of us have been among the wicked. And if you still are, if you've still not put your faith in Jesus implore you. Judgment is real. Righteousness. I don't mean like a, you know, hey, I had a couple butterflies in my tummy, I felt good on a Sunday and walked the aisle. I mean a really giving yourself to Jesus and following him all the days of your life. Walking in the way of righteousness because you've seen how much God loves you. Seen what he's saved you from. And you'll want to love him back. Look at what those who want to love God back are called to do in verses 4 through 6. And this is how Malachi closes not only his book, but the entire Old Testament. He tells those who would be righteous and who would follow the way of the Lord, Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, The statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, or behold, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Malachi says there's a decision before you. You can walk in the way of the righteous and experience blessing, or you can walk in the way of the wicked and experience curse. There is a day coming, and day here refers to Jesus' first coming and his second coming, where God's judgment will come. Who will bring an insurmountable joy, an unbelievable salvation. 
I mean, it really is interesting. Uh, you have Moses here who typically represents the law throughout the Old Testament. And you also have a mention of Elijah who represents all the prophets. And I think one of the things Malachi is doing is he's saying all of the Old Testament is pointing to this figure who is to come. All of the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus. And it is uh, really neat. Uh, if you, do you remember the story of the, the Mount of Transfiguration? Right? Uh, Peter's just confessed that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, hey, I have to go and die, not the Messiah you've expected. Everybody who wants to follow me has to take up his cross and follow me. And then he says, uh, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And, and then we read in Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And suddenly, notice who shows up. Moses and Elijah appeared to him, talking with him. And then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I'll set up three shelters. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. And Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. And so, in the New Testament, we have this picture, kind of what Malachi, I think, is telling us. Moses and Elijah show up on this mountain, and what they're saying is, this is the one we waited on. This is the one about whom we spoke. This is who the whole Bible is about. His name is Jesus. And as if there was any doubt, if we had any doubt that all of it was about Jesus, any doubt about his identity as the Messiah, any doubt about his ability to deliver us from our sins and into the family of the Father, the glory cloud of just like it used to descend into the temple, and God's voice says, this is my son. I'm pleased with him. Listen to him. Malachi is letting us know very early on that the righteous, well, the way they'll ultimately obtain righteousness isn't by their works, but by faith in the one who is to come and the one who brings this day of the Lord. True blessing and true happiness can only be found in Christ. And I saved this verse for last because it's best. Verse 2 of chapter 2. 
It comes right after that warning about the great and terrible day of the Lord that's burning like a furnace. God will consume all the wicked. We read verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. This is, this is not like the physical sun. This is a, a metaphorical sun that refers to Christ. It's going to rise with healing in his wings. And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. God is going to bring perfect justice. He's going to make everything sad untrue. And on that day, our healing will be complete. On that day, we will go out and playfully jump like calves released from the stall. Maybe a more contemporary image would be, uh, y'all, uh, some, some of y'all have dogs. And you know what happens is when you're away from home, they get to missing you real fierce. And when you, you get home, you can hear them before you even open the door, right? You can hear little paws at the door, little barks maybe. And you open that door, and what that dog does is it goes bananas, right? Not like a cat who just goes off somewhere, doesn't even care. But the dog, it goes bananas. And it's jumping up, it's licking your face, it's excited, I don't have animals, but sometimes my kids do a similar thing. Like, I'll roll in the house, and Owen and Kennedy will come from wherever they are. You can hear their little feet, and they're running. They're like, daddy, daddy, daddy. Friends, this is a picture of what it will be like for us when Christ returns to make all things new. We will be jumping up and down, dog-like jumping, kid-like screaming, Jesus is here! Jesus, Jesus, Jesus! Joy that is without parallel. A happiness that is beyond our capacity to enjoy completely. A delight that, that will flow over the sides of our hearts like an overfull bathtub. God is coming to set all things right, is what Malachi is saying. And we will see there is a difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who utilizes God as a business partner and the one who really knows God personally. If you know him personally, you won't fear this coming judgment. But you'll look forward to this day of the Lord where you get to jump around like a dog and scream joyfully like a child. I don't know about y'all, but I am looking forward to this. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to, some of y'all are like, well, I'm not much of a jumper. Listen, you'll have a resurrection body. It'll be okay. Like, I'm looking forward to seeing some of y'all's inner calf come out. I saw Herschel's inner deer come out one time, but that was because he's jumping out of a way of a car I was driving. But I imagine it'll be, it'll be that wonderful, a, a jumping joy. People that you never thought you'd see jump will be jumping. It will leap. Jesus is back. Friends, it, it's completely worthwhile to serve Jesus. It's completely worthwhile to give your whole life to Jesus. 
there is nobody better than my friend Jesus. There is nothing better in life than living it with him. My prayer is that you would realize this, that you would reject the way of wickedness and embrace the way of righteousness by embracing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let him send you to leaping with joy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the book of Malachi. It has our number in so many ways. It reveals to us how in our wickedness we set up expectations, idols really, that we would like to have. And ever so subtly, our hearts stray away from you. And we begin to return to living life according to the flesh. But God, we praise you that our old self was crucified with Christ. And it's no longer we who live, but he who lives in us. So that the life we live now, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave ourself for us. Thank you that everyone in this room who believes in him can say, Jesus loves me. I know God. He, he says, this one is mine. What greater joy could there be? God, you are so good to us. Heighten our senses so that we don't forget this. Don't allow our spiritual senses to be dulled by all the foolishness that exists in the world. Help us to look forward to the day of our leaping and to begin leaping even now as we consider the glorious truth that Jesus died in our place for our sins and that he rose from the dead for our justification. And that by faith in him, we can know that like him, we too shall rise. This is good news. And we. Amen.